0: Happy new year and welcome to pound the rock the scores nba podcast my name is joseph Cacharo. it's 2021 and i'm still joined remotely by fellow co-host joe wolf on wolf
1: how's it going man happy new year looking forward to doing this all again <laughs> another calendar year man i can't wait
0: we made it we made it barely and by we i mean the entire human race
1: but uh... <laughs> by the skin of our teeth
0: We're two weeks into the NBA season, a most unusual season that has started in a wildly unpredictable way. We're going to get right into it. We're both going to talk about three or four teams. So over the course of the next hour, you will hear us talk about six to eight of what we feel have been the most interesting teams thus far for a variety of reasons, both good and bad. So let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. Give me a team that you think has been interesting through the first two weeks of the season.
1: Got to start with the Brooklyn Nets. And of course, there's a lot of stuff happening on the periphery. Kevin Durant is now in quarantine for the next week due to contact tracing that has alerted the league to a potential exposure to COVID-19. And that will result in him missing, I think, the next four games. I don't know. How do you feel about that, Cash? Because KD has had covid and according to Woj, who did the reporting on this story, he is continuing to register antibodies and is continuing to churn out negative tests. So I understand the idea behind kind of setting a universal standard when it comes to potential exposure and the leak's health and safety protocols. But do you think that it's it maybe excessive and unnecessary to go ahead with the seven-day quarantine when he does still have the antibodies, when he is still registering negative tests time after time after time? Like, do you think that this is necessary?
0: I don't. I mean, it seems odd to me. I was thinking the exact same thing when I was reading about this yesterday or Sunday or whenever it happened. And uh, and when I first saw the news, I was like, oh, does he have COVID again? Did he get it for a second time? And then I started reading it. And I was like, wait a minute. He's continually testing negative he's still registering antibodies. I don't understand this. Now I'm all listen, I'm all for um you know being cautious and extra safe and you know I understand why there's a need for multiple tests even and not just taking the first one for granted. But again, if if we're at a point where the guy is testing negative multiple times in consecutive days and still registering antibodies, I don't really understand why he needs to miss a week, quarantine for a week, miss four games in what's already a condensed season. Like, I don't know. It's just, it just, it seems like overkill to me. And that's coming from someone who very strongly believes in vigilance when it comes to a global pandemic and, and how you can protect yourself and others from it. But yeah, even from my standard, this seems like overkill.
1: Um, yeah, and I guess, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just a question of the, the universal the universality of that standard and then needing to have that universal standard because to, to make exceptions or to bake mitigating circumstances into every health and safety rule and regulation would just be too difficult. And I mean, Baxter Holmes uh, wrote a piece that he published, I think, yesterday, essentially explaining how the health and safety protocols and the testing protocols are being applied. And if Seems like it's mostly fallen on like team's training staffs, which is just like stretching them to the breaking point as far as just like keeping up with the updated protocols all the time and making sure they're being followed by everybody on the team. And like, it just seems like a tremendous mental and emotional strain on the people who are having to make sure that these rules are enforced and keep everybody safe. So I I suppose In a case like this, you know, just applying that universal standard makes everything a little bit simpler. And given what we still don't know about the possibility of reinfection and the possibility of contracting and potentially spreading the virus, even if one is, you know, personally immune to the virus's symptoms is a reason to just exercise an abundance of caution. But obviously a tough break for the Nets. And they're already struggling. They're three and four after starting two and zero. Oh. Spencer Dinwiddie is done for the season after tearing his ACL. So Brooklyn's in a bit of a tough spot right now. Here's what I think is really interesting because look, I predicted that they would finish sixth in the East and lose before the conference finals. And so, ordinarily, you know, you see them get off to a three and four start. They lose to teams like the Hornets and the Wizards. They lose one of their core players for the entirety of the season. They're about to be without their best player for a week in games that matter more because the season is shortened. I mean, this would be a prime opportunity for me to take a victory lap and double down on that prediction. But in a weird way, this kind of spotty start has still given me almost a, a greater sense of encouragement about their big picture upside. Agreed. And the reason for that is look for one thing, they've been unbelievable with both Katie and Kyrie on the floor, which both of those guys are going to be, you know, in the, the most important playoff moments, assuming they can both stay healthy. Um, and Steve Nash is still starting the second and fourth quarters with both of those guys on the bench which maybe worked okay when Dinwiddie was healthy, but in their last couple of games without him was quite rough. Um, but I just think like when both of those guys are out there, it's remarkable how easy it is for them to generate efficient looks uh, just by running like pretty simple stuff. You know, whether it's a double screen with the big man rolling down the lane and KD popping out to the wing with the strong side corner empty so nobody can rotate up from there. Um, or like just running a high Kyrie pick and roll uh, while while KD is simultaneously setting a pin down for Joe Harris, and that's engaging the weak side defenders. Uh, I think when push comes to shove, I I do feel like this is probably the best offense in the league. And look, the defense has been rough the last few games, and I have not been high on the team's defense, and that was the reason that I predicted them to have a kind of disappointing season. But I do think the upside for that defense is higher than I expected it to be coming into the season. Um, So they're 14th in the league through seven games. I thought it looked fantastic in that Christmas Day game against Boston. And look, the big things to me are Durant still looks solid at that end, which to me was a big question mark coming in. Uh, He's been good on the ball. He's been active as a helper, which I think is particularly important because the Nets have been pretty aggressive with their help in the middle of the floor. And there are a lot of times when they rely on him to zone up the weak side. And I think he's been pretty effective at doing that. Um, And we still need to see if that can hold up over the course of the season. But so far, so good. Um, And I think Jared Allen has just been terrific as a rim protector. And like the Nets have been particularly ridiculous with those three guys on the floor with KD Kyrie and Jared Allen. Um, So to me, like, yeah, I do expect their defense to be pretty poor throughout the regular season. Like I think it won't even remain at 14th. Like I could totally see it sliding down into the 20s, but I do feel like they've shown the ability to be at least competent when they need to be. And you know, potentially be something like the 2016-17 Cavs who were elite offensively, were a bottom 10 defensive team, but cranked it up defensively in the playoffs and with the combination of a competent defense and their incredible offense just ran roughshod over the rest of the East. Um, and I don't think the Nets are going to do that because the rest of the East is way better now, but um, you get my point. So yeah, I, I think like they've struggled and I do think, there are big issues, which we can get into if you want, but I think in spite of their struggles, I almost feel a little bit better about their big picture outlook than I did at the start of the season.
0: I'm 100% with you. I've got a piece coming out in the next day or two, uh, which is like 15 observations from the first 15 days of the season. And one of the observation was don't sleep on the Nets D because I see everyone, you know, getting jokes off on Twitter about how bad the defense is and how it's going to be their undoing and, and maybe so, but... If uh, if you watch enough of their early season footage and if you dig into the numbers, I'd even venture to say I've been mildly impressed by their defense. They're doing a good job. First of all, running guys off the three point line, running them off the perimeter. I think they're uh, top ten in, or you can word it like opponents are bottom ten in terms of three point attempt rate against the Nets. You know, forget the makes or the misses, just in terms of their attempt rate they're limiting the number of threes attempted against them. I think they're doing a good job uh like they're kind of defensively deficient perimeter players are doing a decent job of just running guys off the perimeter, kind of funneling them into the middle. As you mentioned, KD and others have done a good job um helping into the middle pretty aggressively and then at the rim Jared Allen especially, but even DeAndre Jordan, who I don't think should be playing anywhere near as many minutes as he has. In general, those guys have done a solid enough job at the rim. I think opponents are bottom eight against the Nets, shooting at the rim or within three feet of the rim. And you add it all up, this team right now, number two in opponent's effective field goal percentage. Number two.
1: Which is not going to sustain.
0: It's not, but it's a hell of a lot better than anyone expected. And it doesn't have to sustain as number two. You know, if it's middle of the pack, given how good and explosive their offense is, they're well on their way. The big problem with them right now is they can't rebound. They're dead last in defensive rebound rate. In general, I just think that there are kind of these underlying signs that their defense may not actually be nearly as bad as people imagine it to be or people think it is when they just kind of look at the raw totals at the end of the game. And yeah, if it's if it's anywhere near this good or this competent. And KD and Kyrie are healthy,
1: lights out. Yeah, so let's talk about the rebounding. Because I think that's pretty interesting, given that the Nets are a huge team. Like, this is a big team. And I think it's pretty surprising for them to be dead last in rebound rate. So, a couple explanations. One is that they do downsize a decent amount, um, especially at the end of games which to be honest, I don't fully understand because again, I think Allen has been one of their most important players. But on the whole, they've played 32 minutes so far with KD as the tallest guy on the floor. And you can, whether you want to say that he is the five or Jeff Green is the five in those lineups, usually Jeff Green is out there with him when they are not playing with either Allen or Jordan out there. KD is the tallest guy on the floor, 32 minutes, 55% defensive rebound rate. Disgusting. And to to put that in perspective, their league worst mark on the season is sixty seven percent defensive rebounds. So
0: anytime you dip below seventy five percent, you're starting to flirt with trouble.
1: And that's basically like in those minutes, their opponents are grabbing almost half of their own misses. Yeah. So that's been part of it, and and it's funny because like they still have a really robust net rating in those minutes because their offense has just been ridiculous, which I guess explains why they've been closing that way and and pulling their centers off of the floor. Their offense has still been great with Jared Allen out there. I think that they should be closing with him in the game, but that's not for me to decide. Um, Another issue is that they switch a ton. And frankly, I think maybe they switch a little bit too much. Very often that leaves Kyrie under the basket, which of course is a recipe to give up a ton of offensive rebounds. And even when they're just dropping their bigs back, when those bigs are stepping up to help or just giving contests at the rim, Their guards and wings are not doing a great job of cracking back uh, or just boxing out from the weak side. And that's how they gave up the offensive rebound that cost them the game against the Wizards. So all of that is contributing to to their poor rebounding. All of it is fixable, I think. Um, And it's actually, this is interesting, like it's way less of an issue when DeAndre is out there. Like they rebound the ball significantly better with him on the floor than with Allen on the floor. But that to me is because DeAndre makes less of an effort to actually contest stuff at the rim. Like he's just sort of sitting back waiting for the rebound to come off. So opponents are also shooting like a way better percentage at the rim when DeAndre's out there instead of Allen. Um, So it's a trade-off, right? Like, do you want somebody who's going to give good-hearted contests and prevent opponents from shooting a high percentage at the rim but potentially give up offensive rebounds as a result? Or do you want the guy who's going to kind of lay back and improve your defensive rebounding, but make it easier for the opposing team to score at the basket? Uh, that's the kind of trade off they're working with there. I, look, I think that ultimately the DeAndre, Jared Allen thing, like, it's a little bit overblown because despite the fact that DeAndre is starting, Allen is still playing more minutes. And not by enough, though. I, I think that, w- like, by the time the playoffs roll around, like, even if Allen isn't starting at that point like deandre will basically just be a token starter and and when they do close games with the big on the floor it is usually allen who's closing uh and the, i think that you know come playoffs they'll either be closing with allen or they'll be closing small with kd or jeff green at the five whichever one of those guys you want to consider the five so i, I don't think that's a huge deal i think honestly like the bigger thing to me And again, this is something that I don't think will be as big an issue come playoff time, which is why I'm not reading too much into this start. But like the depth, like you talked about the depth when when we did our opening night roundup and how impressed you were with their depth. And I really don't think it's been all as cracked up to be at all. Obviously losing Dinwiddie hurts. Dinwiddie wasn't playing great when he was healthy anyway. But like Shamit has been a disaster. Torian Prince... Uh, had a rough year last year and looks somehow even more out of sorts this year um Luawu replaced Dinwiddie in the starting lineup and I think he fits with that group well offensively because of how well he's shooting the ball but he does not make an impact as a defender he's just not physical enough he gets nudged out of the way pretty easily he's foul prone and then Karis Levert who is theoretically in a role that should suit him really well you know playing the the sixth man role you know, where he can thrive as a lead ball handler against second units, like it's not really working for him either or, or he's not making it work for him. Like he's at 43% true shooting. Um, he has a bad habit of just over dribbling. And I think while he is a good passer, he is not like a proactive passer. He often passes sort of as a last resort, which can still be useful when he's drawing multiple defenders um, or collapsing the defense on drives. But a lot of the time, I think it leads to poor decision making. And I think a great example of that was at the end of that game against Memphis, which I don't know if you saw that game. Uh, it was when KD and Kyrie were both out. And on the final possession of regulation, the Grizzlies had JV guarding Joe Harris on the wing and Lavert was handling the ball up top. And rather than recognizing the opportunity to attack JV in space, either by flipping the ball over to Harris and letting him attack or hitting him on a cut or just driving with the chance to maybe pull, you know, the Grizzlies best rim protector down to help. He wound up just dribbling in place and shooting like a step back three at the buzzer, even though the game was tied. And I I don't know. There's just been like a lot of that with him, I think where the decision-making hasn't been particularly keen. And I think he's better than he's shown so far, but I just think on the whole, the Nets depth has probably been overstated a little bit. All of which is to say, I find this team very fascinating. I think they have some real issues that need to be addressed. Uh, I still think it's entirely possible, maybe even probable, given you know the KD absence that's coming up, that like they'll ultimately enter the playoffs without home court and lose before the conference finals, as I predicted. But I also believe in their upside uh, in a way I'm not sure I fully did a couple of weeks ago.
0: All right, let's stay in the Atlantic and move to the Philadelphia 76ers, who have the best record in the league at the time of recording this. The reason I find them interesting is because on the surface, if you see that the Sixers have the best record and maybe look at a couple guys shooting percentages, you might think, well, okay, this makes sense. It's what we always thought, you know, surrounding Bede and Simmons with more shooting and Seth Curry and Danny Green, and and that's why it's clicking and they figured it out. But if you actually watch their games and look at the numbers, you'll realize that Actually, not that different. Their shooting accuracy, the percentage is actually slightly down from last season. Now their three point attempt rate is up about two percent, but it's not like they haven't completely overhauled the way they're doing things on offense. Uh, they're still turning the ball over at the same alarming rates they always have in the Simmons and Embiid era. I think their bottom five in turnover rate. Overall, the offense is still at best solidly unspectacular. They're a middle of the pack offensive team as we speak. The difference here, this year so far, six games into a 72-game season, is that they're finally living up to the hype on the defensive end. And living up to the hype of a team that can deploy Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and a ton of length. They have the number one defense in the league. I believe they're the only team right now, this will come up probably a bit, but they're the only team right now allowing less than a point per possession. And Bean might be the best player so far through two weeks, and probably one of the two best defensive player. Probably him and Miles Turner. I'm interested to see, curious to hear what you think of the Sixers this far. Because yeah, in watching them, I've watched three of their full games and and dug into the numbers. And and yeah, that that's kind of what I've come away with. It's like they're not necessarily that different. You know, they're, they I don't think they've found some magic elixir on the offensive end. I just think that so far their defense is finally doing what it's supposed to do. And that's kind of carrying them whether that's sustainable or not. I guess we'll find out.
1: Let's just look at the teams that they've played so far.
0: Yes, let's let's.
1: okay. Wizards, Knicks, Cavs, Raptors, Magic, Hornets, Hornets, not exactly a murderer's row of offensive juggernauts. So I agree. I think they've looked pretty good, particularly on the defensive end. I think, Seth Curry has looked like a fantastic addition to their offense. I think he's been great. I do think that Embiid has been fantastic. I don't want to take anything away from him. I just want to see them play some quality competition before I make any you know sweeping proclamations about whether or not they've turned the corner. Like, let's not forget they started five and zero last year, yep. and we know how that season ended for them. So I think you know they've made. Some interesting tweaks defensively, Embiid is playing a little bit higher up in the pick and roll, I've noticed, like they're using him a little bit more to kind of like pin guys against the sideline and apply a little bit more ball pressure at the point of attack rather than just dropping him back below the free throw line. And I think he's held up incredibly well in doing that. Simmons has obviously been an absolute monster at the defensive end. I think they've had kind of the same issues with him in the half court offensively. Look, I I thought that this team made a whole lot more sense on paper than it did last year. I still believe that to be the case. I think when we talked after opening night, I was kind of bagging on Tobias Harris's decision making. And I actually think since then, he has been way better in that regard, like way more decisive uh, and just generally making better decisions with the ball in his hands. And that led to him being named player of the week in the Eastern Conference. So good on him. Uh, lots of encouraging signs. I just want to see, you know, if those signs can sustain themselves when the schedule actually gets tough.
0: They've beaten a lot of bad teams and a lot of anemic teams too. So like I said, we'll just have to see if it can sustain itself. But if you're looking for a potentially concerning trend, I think it's on the offensive end where, like I said, I don't necessarily think that they look all that different other than Harris, who's been great. And I guess, I mean, you could point to that as something that, maybe lifts their postseason ceiling, right? Having a guy with Harris's skill set that can do what he can do off the dribble, actually playing up to his capabilities. You know, maybe numbers be damned from a team perspective, you look at that and think, okay, like that's the silver lining here
1: on the offensive end. But other than that... I- well, okay. So one thing that stood out to me, and you mentioned like as a team, their turnover issues are still present, but Joel Embiid is turning the ball over way less than he ever has before. And I think that's been a big plus. And he, to me, has looked way better dealing with double teams, making the right reads, making quick reads, uh, and doing it without turning the ball over. So if you're looking for you know encouraging signs that might be sustainable at the offensive end, I think Embiid's decision-making in particular out of the post when he's seeing extra bodies has been a lot better.
0: It's been better. I don't know if I'm really to say it's been a lot better. Okay, He's coming from a, a pretty low bar, but it's been better. I'll give you that.
1: Yeah, I mean look, the the issue to me is still that lack of a kind of reliable go-to half court initiator. They almost sort of do it by committee, right? They cobble something together using a variety of Simmons initiated possessions and Harris attacking off of the catch and Curry has run a bunch of pick and roll. He shot the lights out like he, he's he's at fifty six. What is he at? He's at 56, 54, a thousand shooting. Like those are his splits right now. He's, he's above 50% from the field, from three, and 100% from the free throw line. So he has obviously helped open things up. And he, like, it's not quite on the level of like Embiid and Redick in terms of the two-man game. But I do think he's replicated a lot of what Redick brings. as like an off-ball mover and a guy who can kind of uh, help grease the wheels for that offense just by dragging a defender with him essentially wherever he goes yeah and
0: again like there, there are silver linings to be found if you're looking for reasons why maybe their offense is a little more translatable to the postseason than it has been in years past i just think it's interesting that that's not at all what's carried them early in the season right and i think a lot of people kind of assume that based on the offseason moves
1: well i okay yeah on the whole maybe their offense has been like mediocre but their bench is really dragging that down. Like I think their starters have actually been awesome, and in what's become a years long trend now, they just can't really find the right combinations off of the bench, and I, I don't know if that's an issue that's going to get resolved. I will say I think Tyrese Maxey has looked great, like at both ends of the floor. I think they found a real gem, and again, shouts to Mike Muscala for the shot. That he made at the buzzer to essentially secure that draft pick for the Sixers, and they used that pick to find a guy that I think is going to be like a real impact two-way contributor for them for a long time. Uh, whether he can be that over the course of this season, I guess, is still to be determined. But like, he really does have some off-the-dribble juice. He's able to get you know to get himself to the rim pretty easily. I think um, he's got a pretty explosive first step, and I, he just like a pest on defense, man. So that's one guy who seems like he is potentially going to be reliable for them off of the bench. But like, apart from that, man, they've, they've had a hard time cobbling together a, a functional reserve rotation. Like Dwight's been okay. Mike Scott's been not very good. Like who else do they have coming off of that bench? Like, I don't know, Terrence Ferguson, Tony Bradley has been injured. I think Corkmaz has been terrible. Like I, it's, it's no it's, surprise
0: to anyone that's followed this team for the last half decade that their one loss so far this season came in the game Joel Embiid didn't play. Yeah, look if if this is the year he can finally put it all together, stay healthy from start to finish, then they got a shot. <laughs> if <Yeah>. he can't, <laughs> they do not.
1: Um, I did forget about Shake Milton, who I actually think has been pretty good. Although lately he hasn't been shooting the ball particularly well, but he's been all right. Like kind of captaining. The second unit. Uh, he's, he can do some stuff with the ball in his hands. He's been fine. All right. Who's your next team? My next team is a team that you projected to finish behind the Washington Wizards in the standings. <laughs> and instead they're currently leading the East at five and two after a straight up heist against the Pelicans last night in which they erased a six point deficit in the span of about 10 seconds at the end of regulation and then one in overtime with both Sabonis and Turner fouled out. Uh, it's the Indiana Pacers. So,
0: Fraud. No, I, wow. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, oh, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Just what I am.
1: swinging shit right from the jump. Um,
0: New Year, say me.
1: <laughs> yeah. The, look, the Pacers are seventh in offense, seventh in defense, fifth in net rating, uh, despite TJ Warren missing half their games and looking kind of like a shell of himself when he did play. And now he's out indefinitely after foot surgery to deal with that nagging issue. Um, But without him, the Pacers will look really good. Uh, And the key developments to me, I mean, one of them is schematic. Uh, Their shot profile looks completely different under Nate Bjorkren. Their three point attempt rate is up to around league average. Uh, They're leading the league in their proportion of shot attempts at the rim. They're still close to last in free throw attempt rate, which is surprising to me, uh, given how often they're working the ball inside. But um, if you look at uh, a stat called location effective field goal percentage, which is a stat invented by cleaning the glass to essentially quantify uh, the value of the shots that teams are taking and give you sort of a projected estimate of what their effective field goal percentage would be if average shooters were taking the shots from where that team is taking their shots on the floor. Last year, the Pacers were 21st in that category. This year, they are second. So I think that is a good kind of catch-all snapshot of just how they've improved their shot diet. Oladipo's looked awesome. Uh, He's shooting the ball really well. He's getting to the cup. You know, his playmaking has been pretty sharp. He's been lively on defense. And that sort of uh, heist against new Orleans last night that I was mentioning was engineered in large part by Oladipo who uh, with the Pacers trailing by six hit like a 30 foot bomb, then ripped Lonzo in the backcourt and set up miles Turner for a game tying three that sent the game to overtime that look, I wouldn't say he was back to 2017, 18 level. I, th- I think the first step and just like the overall explosiveness, just, still aren't quite the same. Um, and I think things are gonna look different if or when the shooting regresses for him. But for now, he to me looks, you know, like he's back to playing like a star. And then you have Malcolm Brogdon, DeMontis Sabonis, who are probably the biggest drivers of the team's rim pressure. And both
0: guys have just been phenomenal in general.
1: Yeah. Like ball to start the year. Absolutely. And Sabonis I mean, look, I think he, he looks more or less like the same guy to me. He's been a little bit more efficient, like scoring more out of the post. Um, Brogdon's been just like incredible as a lead ball handler, like better than I would have expected. But I think the guy I really want to talk about is Miles Turner, because he, to me, has been sort of the unheralded star who's really holding that defense together. Uh, they've allowed 12.5 fewer points per hundred with him on the floor. And he's been maybe the best rim protector in the league. Like, I think it's between him and Embiid, probably.
0: Yeah, that's what I was saying. I'd say right now, if if we had to vote six to seven games into a 72-game season on Defensive Player of the Year, it'd be between those two guys.
1: So, look, forget about just the block totals, right? Which are obscene. But just leave the blocks aside. Turner is defending 10.3 shots per game at the rim. And to provide some context... Nobody in the NBA.com database, which for this particular stat goes back eight years. No one's even come close to that. And on that historic volume of contested shots at the rim, he is holding opponents to 43% shooting. Uh, And to put that in context, Giannis led the league in that stat last year at around 42%, but he was doing it on one third, the volume of contested shots. So and the you know the volume is actually, that's like an interesting part of this because the Pacers as a team are allowing a higher proportion of shot attempts at the rim than any other team in the league, which is not something you typically associate with like a good interior defense because a big part of being a good interior defense is not allowing teams to shoot the ball at the rim in the first place. But I do think it's at least in part a schematic thing where like they're able to just focus on running guys off of the arc funneling them toward the middle of the floor where they know Turner is waiting. And I think in part, at least it's by design that they're forcing opponents to take so many of their shots close to the rim where they have maybe the best rim protector in the league, just swatting everything away and altering shots left and right. Man, I I, like Turner's always had the physical tools. Like he has sharpened those tools in recent years. He's been a borderline all defense guy. The last two seasons, I thought he deserved second team a couple years ago, but this is new, like his timing and his reads and his footwork, uh, just his precision when he's tracking ball handlers on drives, there are no wasted steps. And even though like, he's not a perfect defensive center, like the defensive rebounding is still an issue and he can still kind of get shoved around by bigger centers. But as a backline helper and a pick and roll defender, uh, there aren't many who are doing it better than he's doing it right now. Um, So I I think he deserves a ton of credit for the start that they've had.
0: Yeah, and obviously on the offensive end, I think, you know, what everyone wants to talk about is how Nate Bjorkren has modernized their shot profile. Now, it's not as drastic as maybe it was in like the first few games of the season. Things have normalized a little bit, but compared to the way the team was being run under Nate McMillan in previous years, it's a much more modern offensive attack and i also like how balanced of an attack it is if you look at not just their modernized shot profile but their shot distribution among their best players it is very balanced and you know we can probably debate whether they actually have the type of star talent that they need to win in the playoffs you know i i I like sabonis a lot I've, i've loved what brogdon's done so far this season i agree that oladipo looks much more like his spry self early in this season do i think any of those guys are good enough to carry this team to a win in the playoffs against what's gonna be a good east team wherever they finish i'm not sure but at least for now i think their approach is very good. Their attack is very good. It will be very tough to stop this team. I don't know how many, how many people thought of this team as like a potential offensive juggernaut, and maybe they're not quite there yet, but it will be tough to stop them because they are a balanced offensive team with a good shot profile, guys who can create for themselves, create for others. Like it's just a solid offensive team with Miles Turner anchoring things on the defensive end. They're smart. They're good. I'll give you that.
1: Well, thank you. I also think it's interesting that. You know, all the things I said about Turner. Kind of forgot that they tried to trade him this offseason. And (laughs) the only reason they didn't is because the Celtics apparently didn't want him, which is still just wild to me. But yeah, I think, look, that's always a question every season, right? When, like every year, I think there are teams that have good regular seasons, but they do so without that, like, A-level superstar the guy who you think you know you can rely on to pull you through multiple playoff series and every year it's a question of okay like this team is good they're balanced we like the way they play they can defend they have good shot distribution they play well as a team but when the game slows down and opponents can scout you and you're in that pressure cooker do you have that one guy you can rely on? And it it's it's a hard question to answer. Like you you don't really know until you actually see it. And honestly like Miami last year was like the closest thing to bucking that trend, I think, because for as transcendent as Jimmy Butler was throughout the playoffs, like for most of the regular season and like he was great, don't get me wrong, but he was not he didn't profile as like the typical, like, drag you through the playoffs type of offensive superstar. But we knew, uh, at least I did, that he had it in him. Well, but we'd never seen him do that before.
0: You know what I okay, mean? We it's never clear. saw him do th- that at that level. But I don't like, was it ever really a doubt that he could be like the alpha offensive player on a contender?
1: I mean, I do think that it was in doubt. Yeah, like I don't, I don't think that it was like a foregone conclusion that he could be the best player on a finals team. I'm just saying, and I'm not like, I'm not even necessarily saying that that was some like insane outlier, but like he was a, he was like a borderline top ten player in the league, and even that, like, if your best player is a borderline top ten player, like usually that's not enough to get you to the finals. And again, I'm not saying like the Pacers are going to make the finals or anything. All they I'm have nothing is-
0: close to a top 10 borderline, borderline top Agreed,
1: 10 Agreed. But I think, you know, it, TJ Warren healthy, you're looking at a starting five where you might have like five top 60 players in the league. And I don't know if you can say that about any other team right now. And again, you can say that's not what wins in the playoffs and you'd probably be right. But I, you know, I, I'm talking about maybe like winning. Look, I, I don't even care. We, I, I don't want to like, we're two weeks into the season. We should not be projecting this out to the playoffs. So be a foolish conversation. I just want to say that the Pacers have been interesting. Credit them for playing well. Credit Miles Turner for how well he's played after getting traded in the off, after almost getting traded in the off season. And uh, we can move on from there.
0: I do think that they're starting five with Warren healthy is incredible. They're not very deep, but the starting five is incredible. And it's a bummer that Warren is down. Anyway, I've, I've achieved my goal of <laughs> chipping
1: away at your spirit. Every time you bring up the Pacers, so unchipped, my spirit <laughs> is unchipped. It's too early. I'm going I'm to enjoy this Pacers season without any thoughts of what it might mean for their playoff fortunes.
0: All right. Speaking of a team who I think we should enjoy for what they're worth right now and not necessarily project them out to the postseason because who knows what the hell's going to happen. The Golden State Warriors. Now, they're only 4-3, and three, but given the way some were jumping off the bandwagon two games into a 72-game season, I think they're worth talking about mainly because not just the fact that Steph Curry went off for 62 points and looks like old Steph again, but because of what preceded that and that is the return of Draymond Green. Steph scoring 62 is going to get the headlines as it should. It's 62 points. It's Steph Curry. He remains one of the most thrilling stars we've ever had the privilege of watching. But I think the way the Warriors have played in the couple games Draymond's been back has been very encouraging. And mostly just because of the way Draymond himself just unlocks things for this team. We've talked ad nauseum about whether or not an engaged Draymond can still kind of do it in the regular season. I said before the season that especially when Clay went down, the Warriors are going to need Mr. 16-game player to show up in the first 72 if they have a shot to even make it to the 16-game tournament this year. What we've seen in the first two games he's played is pretty encouraging. And I'm not talking about his individual stats because it's pretty tough to ever judge Draymond on those individual numbers. You know, clown him for the the whole triple-single thing if you want. His impact on the game is very obvious. Like on the offensive end, whether it's something as simple as just the way he screens for Steph, the way he directs traffic with others, the way he borderline bullies Andrew Wiggins to move, his playmaking, and then on the defensive end, the way he can make an otherwise pretty ordinary defensive team look special on some possessions. It's just like we saw the full package. You know, he's played two games. He's already, I think, second or third on the team in assists. He's already top five in the league in charges drawn. He's back. And if he can be this guy... You know, for any prolonged period of time, I think the last couple of games are a reminder that Steph Curry is still good enough. And there is still, even on this very suspect team, which, you know, in a supporting cast, I don't really believe in other than a rookie big man. I still think Steph's good enough and Draymond's smart enough to prop this team up. You know, after opening night, I mentioned that with Clay out and when Draymond's not in the lineup, The remaining Warriors just aren't good enough or smart enough to A make the most of the space Steph creates for them, or to make things easier and create space for Steph. I think a lot of that changes with Draymond in the lineup.
1: I'll put it this way: I don't think that there is another player in the league who could hit one field goal over the course of three games and still be clearly his team's second best player. And that's not even an indictment of the Warriors, though I do think the roster construct has a lot of flaws. It's just the fact that Draymond does so many other things to impact the game. And like he's obviously had a meaningful impact on their defense just with his activity on the weak side. He's blown up so much stuff just by rotating over. Um, and that's made a, a tremendous difference for them. And you mentioned like his screening for Steph. I thought like a, a kind of underplayed thing in those first few games and Steph struggling was just the trouble that he had creating separation because there isn't really anybody else on that team that can set a good solid screen like Kevon Looney maybe, but then you're also just sort of inviting the defense to trap you in that case, because what is Kevon Looney doing? If he catches the ball in space, Draymond is obviously a great connector who can make that next play, make the defense pay for any coverage that they play against Steph in the pick and roll. I thought, He really made the Blazers pay for sticking Carmelo Anthony on Draymond for a really like extended stretch in the fourth quarter of their game a couple nights ago. And that just like invited the Warriors to run like Curry, Draymond, pick and rolls at them over and over and over again. I do think you said, can he be this guy? Like, I do think he can be this guy. But I do also think like the Warriors need him to be more than that. Like they need him. He, he cannot be hitting like one field goal over three game stretches for the rest of the season. They need him to be some kind of a threat to score uh, at some point in time. Just not even like if clay was there, maybe it'd be different, but given, you know, we've talked about this, but just like the lack of shooting and playmaking and scoring acumen on the rest of the roster, the lack of self creation on the rest of the roster. Um, you know, like Draymond's savvy and intelligence can make up for a lot, but I I do think at some point, like they're going to need him to be at least a marginal threat to score the basketball. I guess that's what I'll be looking to see. It's not just like, Oh, can he be the same guy that he's been in these three games? Because I think as a defender and as a playmaker, like there's no doubt in my mind that he can be that guy over the course of the season, but I think they might need him to do a little bit more than that. And and look, the supporting cast was never going to be as bad as it was in those first five games or whatever. When when Kelly Oubre started, I think like one for his first 27 from three. Dude, Uh, he was like
0: 0 for, what was it? 0 for 20. Wasn't he 0 for 20 something on non-dunks to start the season?
1: I think it was like over 31. That was, as, was as bad as it got. Yeah. <laughs> I kept posting that Portlandia clip where, <laughs> have you ever seen that? No. Where they're like, uh, it's the the like sketch with like the two uh, female like bookshop owners. And for whatever reason, they became the coaches of the Blazers. They were just okay. telling them that they just wanted them to dunk everything. They're like, we can't help you if you don't just want to dunk the ball, which is basically where, where Kelly Oubre was at. Um, And he's had some spectacular dunks this year. Don't get me wrong. But I think he hit four threes their last game. Like it was nice to see him finally knock down some jump shots. And obviously he's going to be better than what he's been as a jump shooter so far this season. Um, I think their defense is like still a little bit of a mess. There's only so much Draymond can do to sort out what have been some miscommunications and janky rotations. And Wiseman, who I think has been, surprisingly good on the offensive side of the ball has been a big part of the defensive problem, but um, I don't know. Like what, what are your expectations for this team going forward? Do you think they're going to be in the play-in you think they're making the the final eight at the end of the day?
0: I do, but I think they will be in the play-in and I think that's their path to the final eight. I think the one thing that's changed is, you know, I came into the year thinking that even without clay, there was like a kind of pie in the sky scenario where, Everything breaks right, and they could still be maybe even like fringe contenders. I think I'm probably off that boat already, just because of how bad the supporting cast is. I wouldn't say I'm fully off it. I've I've got one toe in the water, ready
1: to jump. The waters of, of fringe contention. Yeah. Wow, uh, man, that's <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> you're saying there, there's no chance in hell.
1: I don't see it. Like I,
0: I'm yeah, a big, big step
1: believer. Like I, you know that I, but.
0: I don't either. It's just I don't want to be the guy who th- says the thing that I believed two and a half weeks ago is no longer. I'm pretty much off the boat, but I don't want to completely give up on it yet. But yeah, the, the supporting cast is bad. Uh, you would need Wiseman to be really special, and look, he's been really impressive given how little competitive basketball he's played in the last couple of years. You know, for his that to be his for first for foray into the NBA. But yeah, and, unless Draymond is like rediscovers 2015 Draymond and Wiseman, you know, just takes a sizable leap within his rookie year, which is basically unheard of, then yeah, they're not, they're not even a fringe contender, but they're a heck of a lot better than they looked in the first week of the season when people were jumping off the bandwagon as them being, you know, relevant at all this year. And I do still think that they get into the play-in and they'll get into the, the final eight.
1: Yeah, I think like the, the Wiseman thing, I think it's been more encouraging from like a long-term perspective where it's like, okay, like you can see the outline of a really productive player here when he starts to figure it out, you know, gets used to NBA game speed, starts to understand the nuances of NBA defense. He could be a pretty special player, not from the perspective of, Oh, like this guy's really going to help us win a ton of games this year. Like I, right. I don't see that happening. I think the flashes have been really encouraging. The fact that he shot the ball well is really encouraging. And obviously just like his physical tools are so tantalizing. Like there have been a few times where like he's been pretty late to rotate and and has still managed to make like a pretty spectacular block just because of like how long he is and how high he can get up. Um, Like those physical tools can make up for a lot. So I I would be encouraged by what, you know, his long-term outlook might be. But, you know, for this season, it's going to be a development year for him. And yeah, I mean, look, it's it's been entertaining for sure, especially you know with Draymond back to watch him. Like I'm sure you saw last night when he was literally jumping up and down trying to get Wiggins to like clear out. The wheel like I said, He's
0: borderline bullying Wiggins the last couple of games. It's it's pretty fun to watch.
1: I remembered a tweet that I had written that I that I went back to find when they made the D'Angelo for Wiggins trade, which in hindsight, given how good that pick from Minnesota is probably going to be was like unquestionably a win for the Warriors. And I think that the time we were kind of like, this is sort of like a whatever trade for both teams, but I think it's safe to say the Warriors definitely won that trade, but I I was basically just like, I can't wait to watch Steph Curry, like cutting and setting endless off ball screens while Andrew Wiggins dribbles in place for 20 seconds. And I feel like that's happened like multiple handfuls of times already this season.
0: But now daddy's back. Draymond's back. And he, he will not stand for that kind of childish, clownish offensive behavior.
1: Yeah. Honestly, man, if, like, they're, they're going to be entertaining to watch just for that reason. Like just to watch Draymond yeah. play daddy and, yeah. and try and like explain, impress upon everybody like where they need to be in extremely demonstrative fashion.
0: Last thing before we move on to your third and final team. Can you think, because I was thinking about this last night and I couldn't come up with one. Can you think of a big man in your time watching basketball with a catch radius as expansive as James Wiseman's?
1: I mean, I guess like you could say Gobert, right? Huh. And like, like, I don't know. You, I have to go and like, like compare their standing reach. I think Gobert's got a, got a bigger standing reach than Wiseman does. Um, Anthony Davis's catch radius is pretty ridiculous. I, I don't know. What, how, what? What have you felt about Wiseman's hands? Like you can talk about that catch radius, but I feel like he hasn't actually been all that great at catching the ball. Yeah, so
0: It's been stone hands, but I, I don't mean like his actual effectiveness yet on the pick and roll or yeah, like catching. I just mean literally his ability to like the amount of space that you can throw the ball into that. Once he learns how to catch it more consistently will be like his space in the air that you yeah. can throw and it. No, up it's, it's enormous. And, it's, and I agree, uh, like measurable wise, there's pro, there's definitely guys who um, can beat him. But in terms of just like visually watching it, I, I don't know if it's like the measurables plus the vert. I, I don't know. But it just seems like he's capable of at least getting his hands to balls in this insanely large area that I don't remember watching with other young bigs.
1: Yeah, you're right. It's not just about the, the reach, right? It's the fact that he has that reach and can also get up like few guys that size can actually do. So he's a, he's a massive target and that is going to be helpful for Steph in the pick and roll for a long time. I think
0: what's up pound the rock listeners, just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the scores, fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already download the score app available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show.
1: Okay, my last team's the Pelicans, uh, who I mentioned briefly earlier when I was talking about that game that they blew against the Pacers last night. Uh, they were on the other end of that shocking turnaround in the final seconds. And even before that there was some you know, pretty questionable offensive decision-making that led to them giving that game away. I mean, they led by 10 points with like a little over two minutes left and then didn't score for the rest of the game. And a lot of that was, you know, some of the stuff that's irked me about Brandon Ingram in the past, even though I've almost totally come around on him this season, because I think he's actually been spectacular. Like I think his pacing and his decision-making and his playmaking have all really improved. Um, but he was doing just like a lot of isolating and taking contested jump shots down the stretch of that game. And he still has a penchant for that kind of stuff. But uh, I-, I also think he's turned into like a pretty superb offensive player. Um, but what's fascinating to me about this team is how Stan Van Gundy has like completely reoriented their defense. And he's done so essentially by borrowing the bucks model of dropping the bigs back, pulling in super aggressively from the wings and the corners and just protecting the paint at all costs. And that's resulted in them giving up the highest share of opponent threes in the league by a mile. 48% of all their opponent shots have been threes. Um, But in conjunction, uh, they've had one of the lowest rates of opponent shots at the rim. So They're basically the exact inverse of the Pacers at the defensive end, and it's working really well for them. They're fourth in the league in defensive efficiency, which has made up for what's been, you know, a very pedestrian offense. Uh, and, And as part of that, like, they're also playing super slow, where obviously they played incredibly fast under Alvin Gentry. And we can talk about whether that's good for them or not. But I think Stan has obviously prioritized the defensive end of the floor and... Uh, so far, you know, it's working for them pretty well.
0: Yeah, the one thing that I'd mention, and, and this is actually one of the 15 observations in that post uh, that I talked about because you brought up the Pelicans defense, is holy hell, though, do they need Zion Williamson to try a little harder on defense, man. Like, it's been bad. And I know he's 20 years old. I know young big men especially take usually a longer time to be positive value, positive impact guys on the defensive end, but youth can be an excuse for defensive execution, you know, maybe even defensive IQ, youth can't be an excuse for defensive effort. And the effort has been pretty embarrassing on that end. Like there, there are some clips, Dave DeFore tweeted out a great one last night where he just completely let Miles Turner. Free reign to the middle of the paint, barely put his body on him. And we're talking about Zion Williams, I'm like the guy's a freak athlete with freakish strength and freakish size. And although height wise, he doesn't measure up to a guy like Miles Turner, can definitely have bodied up Miles Turner and just provided no resistance whatsoever. It was embarrassing, man. And uh, and the broadcast noted it too. And yeah, there's just been way too many examples of that I've found from Zion so far this season. And look, he's had moments of brilliance, especially on the offensive end. But even if you maybe aren't too zoomed in on this season, if you want to zoom out and just think big picture in the coming years, I'm not saying panic about his defense, but they, they need way better from him. Full stop.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And th- that's why I think that, like the Steven Adams thing has been interesting, right? Because look, I... I... I understood why they got him. I wasn't crazy about the extension they gave him, but it's played out very similarly to how the Derek Favors thing played out last year, at least until the bubble when Favors kind of fell apart. They've been really, really good with Steven Adams on the floor. Like he statistically has been their biggest driver of success and they've been pretty disastrous without him. And that was basically the case with Favors last year too. Like they could not defend without Favors on the floor. And as appealing as the you know Zion at the five lineups might be in theory, He can't be a five defensively. Uh, He's just not at that stage. He needs other guys to cover for him. And look, I I think obviously there's a trade-off there where you accept a tenuous offensive fit between Zion and Steven Adams. But it's not that hard to navigate just because of how effective Zion is at straight up overpowering people and sometimes multiple people when he's operating in like narrow corridors and the Pelicans have like run some stuff to get him the ball on the move, which is all he really needs in order to go and finish at the rim. Even if there are multiple people, there trying to barricade it. Um, one of them that I've really liked is like, they'll sort of run almost like a decoy pick and roll with, uh, with one of their guards and, and Adams and like Zion will basically just be trailing that pick and roll. And instead of the pass going to the screener, it'll go to Zion trailing the play. And they'll sort of get him ahead of steam that way. And Adams can almost like serve as like a lead blocker that gives him a path to the rim. Like they, they have some fun stuff like that where, where they are getting him the ball on the move. And, and this is where I think their pace becomes kind of interesting, right? Because them playing super slow doesn't really serve Zion, who is extraordinarily effective playing in the open floor and especially like him and Lonzo, like how many times did we see them hook up in transition last year? And that just hasn't been as much a part of their game this year because the team slowed it down a bit and they've struggled in the half court. That's meant just like a lot more Ingram initiating. They've really needed him to do that because who else on their team can kind of handle the ball and pass and is a threat to shoot off the dribble. Uh, It's, it's pretty much fallen on him and he's been really good in that role, but they're also bottom 10 in offense for a reason, you know, despite having two of the more talented offensive players in the league and in, in Ingram and Zion. So I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll just. Maybe it'll just take a while for them to settle on like a style of play that suits them best. Uh, but right now the priority has obviously been defense and, and it's hard to complain about the results, right? Like if they had managed to hold on to that game against the Pacers last night, they'd be five and two right now. They've got some quality wins in the bag. Um, and I think Eric Bledsoe deserves some credit. Like instil- installing the Bucks defensive system probably wouldn't work if they didn't have like one of the most important pieces of that Bucks system in the fray. And Bledsoe is a guy who is both, you know, pursuing guys from behind, uh, going over top of screens, a pest at the point of attack, and also really good at pulling over from the weak side into the middle of the floor. And like, that's something you could point to and say like the Pelicans sucked at doing this last year. Like their help rotations were very bad. And that's a big part of the reason that they struggled defensively. Like like they just did not provide enough help at the rim and having a guy like Bledsoe who is like hyper aware, hyper physical um and as both the, like an on-ball guy and as a help guy uh, has made a big impact for them.
0: Yeah, and uh, and the Pelicans have relied on him. Like Stan Van Gundy has relied on him. I remember the first couple games of the season uh seeing a lot of Pelicans Twitter almost complaining about how much Bledsoe was playing and I think now people are starting to appreciate uh the defensive impact he has on the game on the perimeter. So, yeah, some some interesting things there with the Pelicans. Okay, the last team we're going to talk about as being interesting and for a lot different reasons than i think the five teams we've talked about so far the raptors offense right now i mean we as a team in general like they haven't been great defensively either they're like middle of the pack which you know some of that might be some bad luck but defense hasn't exactly been great nick nurse's rotations have been somewhat puzzling uh their depth looks beyond suspect and uh, you know a team that used to close out games in its sleep now consistently pisses itself in crunch time so there are a lot of things to dig into there but The reason I want to talk about them and what makes them interesting from a depressing perspective is that this team's offense is an absolute disaster, a dumpster fire. With Pascal Siakam just like still yet to rediscover the handle, the finishing ability, or the relentlessness that made him a breakout star even on the offensive end, without Pascal being that guy, the Raptors just don't have enough individual shot creation to survive. Lowry and Van Vliet especially, has been great but those guys are undersized guards there are only so many things they can do right they can only do so much for you offensively in terms of their individual shot creation OG Ananobi his ball handling still comes and goes Uh, Norman Powell's decision making with the ball in his hands limits his impact if Siakam can't consistently create his own offense where is that offense coming from there's a reason this team is currently 28th in offensive efficiency there's a reason I think they score 0.83 points in isolation right now. There's a reason they launch a league leading 49.9% of their shots from behind the arc. It's because they can't create or score efficiently enough inside the arc. And it doesn't help that even outside of individual shot creation, their starting center can't catch a ball right now and can't lay it up right now. So like they...
1: Outback Biombo
0: yeah for real like they don't have anyone who can consistently create their own offense inside the arc they at the moment don't really have a big man who can finish inside well i guess chris boucher but you know he's not exactly a big bruising big man in the middle of the floor you can see how this team goes through minutes long stretches without scoring every night you can see how they've blown double digit leads in all six games they played this is a team that went 48 and four went building a double digit lead last season and they're already one in five in such games this season again there are a lot of things you can point to here and there's also the very human element that i don't want to discount that look this is a team facing a very unprecedented situation they have no home for the, like you know they, they've made tampa bay their temporary home but as many people have rightly pointed out you know they're not going home to sleep in their own beds they, they're basically playing 72 road games a lot of these guys are away from their families Like those are valid
1: they're getting um, booed in their own
0: arena. Booed in their own arena. People are chanting, we want Taco because 100% more Celtics fans or like American-based fans in Tampa Bay than there are Raptors fans. I get it. But those things don't explain why the offense is as embarrassing as it is. You know, th- there are basketball reasons for that. And uh, like I said, it's it's a much more depressing reason than the five teams we've talked about earlier on this podcast, but given the expectations we still both had for this team, especially in the regular season, at least regardless of the playoffs, I think how bad they've been on the offensive end makes them one of the six most interesting so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, their offensive struggles, I don't know how far beyond like Pascal Siakam straight up hasn't been good. Those issues really go. It's not just a matter of, hey, here's this guy who was really good last year, made second team all NBA, who's, now playing like a replacement level player just in terms of his efficiency at least it's like the raptors don't have anything resembling a player or a collection of players who can make up for what they're losing in terms of rim pressure interior scoring transition scoring like the things that Siakam does when he's at his best are things that the rest of his roster cannot replicate, cannot come close to replicating. And that's doubly true because Norm Powell, their best slasher, like the other guy on the roster who can actually put pressure on the rim, has been even worse. Has like completely forgotten how to play basketball, it seems like.
0: His, like, his basketball IQ has never been impressive.
1: No, but, like, he was really good last year, man. And as a guy who was, like, attacking off of the catch, punching gaps, like, finishing incredibly efficiently around the rim, like, was close to 70% in the restricted area last year and is now, like, shooting under 40% from two-point range. It's kind of inexplicable. And obviously, you know, you mentioned Aaron Baines. Like, he's not giving them anything. He sets good just like
0: literally it right now.
1: They're just like totally reliant on the three ball. So, yeah, if you want to know how a team can blow five straight games in which it holds a double digit lead, it's because every team ultimately is going to go through shooting droughts. And if shooting is all you have, then yeah, eventually you're going to see your lead slip away. I think there's got to be some hope. And reason to believe that Siakam will eventually find himself again, I just don't know that there's a lot of evidence that minus a catastrophic injury, a player that's as good as he was last year just suddenly loses it like this. I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that happen for a healthy player before. And And maybe like the environment has something to do with it. Like this team just hasn't been settled for almost a year now, right? Like since March. I feel like that's probably contributing to it to some extent, with all of these guys. But, like, we've talked about this off-air, man, but I, the biggest thing to me is, like, Siakam's handle has completely abandoned him. And, and so much of what made him successful last year was, like, he'd get matched up with opposing bigs and just dust them off of the dribble. Who was then,
0: it? You remember in New Orleans last year?
1: Of Of course. I don't
0: remember. And, and against was...
1: LA, too, like when he just absolutely, like he broke AD's ankles with the crossover. Like that was the kind of stuff that he was doing on a regular basis. Not only that, but if he got mashed up on a smaller player, it was like an automatic bucket in the post. And it, like he got mashed up on Peyton Pritchard last night, caught the ball like with really deep post position and didn't even put it on the floor, like immediately traveled. I, I don't know why. Like it's, it, it's, I I guess it's like, it's got to be part mental. um, But part of it is just the fact that like, I I don't know, he doesn't seem to trust his handle right now. And for good reason, because it seems like every time he dribbles it, he either loses it or like it almost gets away from him. And when he drives the ball, it was like, he used to take guys off the bounce, but now mostly what he does is he dribbles his way into post-ups and he's no longer scoring effectively on those post-ups. So he too, like everybody else on the Raptors has sort of fallen back on his three point shot. And it's very nice to see that he has developed that three-point shot to the point that it's been, you know, a semi-reliable weapon for him. But right now he's shooting 30% from three-point range and that's really not where his bread is buttered. Like that's something that's supposed to open up his drive game, but his drive game right now is non-existent. So that's where it starts to me because that just puts so much pressure on everybody else on the roster uh, to do more at the offensive end. Some guys have risen to that challenge. I frankly think... Fred Van Vliet has been spectacular. Like, I don't think that they can ask for much more than what they've been getting from him so far as a scorer. He's always been reliant on his three ball, but he, in the last few games, has actually, like, done a pretty good job of getting to the rim and finishing at the rim, which has never been a forte for him. But he's shooting over 50% from two-point range for the first time in his career, averaging 22 points a game. He's been awesome. Kyle Lowry giving you everything that you could ask for and more from an almost 35-year-old point guard. Um, you know, playing 37 minutes a game and yeah, he's slipped defensively. No, he's not the kind of guy who's like going to create separation or burn guys off of the bounce. But as far as a guy who's setting the table for other guys and creating at least some rim pressure, he's done all that. But if you're like relying completely on two unathletic six foot guards to drive your entire offense, then you've got problems.
0: Well, they've got problems.
1: Yeah. Like, (laughs) I don't know. I like, look, I I actually, I still think that they're a good team, but they're good players have to start playing like good players in order for them to realize their potential. And it's still super early, but I think sometimes these things have like a snowballing effect and, uh, the vibe around this team right now, I think we can both agree, has not been particularly good.
0: Yeah, it's been concerning to say the least. Uh, they have a top 10 expected effective field goal percentage, by the way. As you mentioned, if they're good players, maybe start playing like good players and, and, and regression hits just a little bit too, right? Like regression to the mean, things normalize a bit. If they're good players start making the shots that they should be making, the offense will look you know, a lot better than it does right now. But as we both mentioned, for their offense to be good enough for this team to go somewhere, they need Pascal Siakam to be the Pascal Siakam that they saw, you know, for a couple years there when he was dusting Draymond friggin' green in the finals. And then, you know, as you mentioned, breaking Anthony Davis's ankles as the number one option early last season. They need that guy or some semblance of that guy to return if, if the offense is going to be anywhere near good enough for them to go anywhere this season. Right now, early indications, not good. All right, six teams up, six teams down, 24 teams we didn't get to, but I'm sure over the course of this season and 2021 we will at some point talk about every nba team we'll find you got anything else to add this this week
1: i do not i want to say happy new year to all our listeners and just hoping for a better 2021 that's all i can really say
0: fan shout out this week bala in mississauga ontario canada who is a loyal listener tweeted us a few weeks back actually like a month back to let everyone know that uh he considers Pound the Rock one of the podcasts where everybody knows what they're talking about, and there is no BS, just straight up NBA. I wish I could agree with that, but once in a while, Wolfon goes on Pacers rants, and I think some BS is included. So that's our fan shout out of the week. Hey, you
1: said that, or he said that?
0: <laughs> no, he, he. I said I added the part at the end.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say he's not gonna love this episode, but
0: yeah, no, no, I added, I, I added the bit at the end there. But shout out to Bala. Shout out to all of our listeners and a reminder as always
1: if you're a fan of pound the rock
0: let us know what you think even if you're not a fan of pound the rock let us know what you think let us know where you're listening from you know what
1: if you're not a fan keep it to yourself (laughs)
0: yeah it'd be it'd be pretty funny if you're not a fan but you're listening an hour deep into our episodes till we get to the fan shout outs that would actually be an impressive kind of masochism Anyway, as I was saying, let us know where you're listening from. We'll get you a shout out in the coming weeks. I believe we only have one in the chamber right now for next week. So get that feedback coming in and we'll get you a shout out. Until next time, for Joe Wolf I'm Joseph Cashado. Pound the rock.